The first part of Jesus' sermon about the end times was a doctrinal discourse. In Matthew chapters 20 and chapter 24, verses 4 through 28, Jesus answers the disciples' questions regarding the sign of his coming and the end of the present age. The tribulation is the sign of the Messiah's coming as king. This event will be a time of divine judgment poured out upon the earth to resolve the time of the Gentiles and to bring about Israel's redemption and restoration. Jesus refers to the tribulation as birth pangs. The birth pangs preceding the birth of the Messianic age. The glorious return of the Messiah is the sign of the present age's end. His return occurs immediately after the tribulation period. Before his return, the sun and the moon will be darkened, and stars will fall from the sky. With the entire planet covered in darkness, the whole world will see the Messiah descending in the sky, descending upon the earth. His coming to earth is not only as king, but as judge. He will dispatch his angels to gather the righteous and the unrighteous before him. The righteous will be welcomed into his kingdom, and the unrighteous will be cast into hell. Now beginning in Matthew 24 and verse 32, Jesus' sermon shifts from doctrine to deportment, from proven theological instruction to practical application for life. And to communicate this practical application, Jesus presents seven parables. The parable of the fig tree in Matthew 24, verse 32 to 35. The parable of two men and two women, Matthew 24, 40 to 41. The parable of the thief, Matthew 24, 43. The parable of the good and the evil slave, Matthew 24, 45 to 51. The parable of the ten virgins, Matthew 25, 1 to 13. The parable of the hidden talent, Matthew 25, 14 to 30. And the parable of the sheep and goats, Matthew 25, 31 through 26, 1. Now in verse 32, Jesus commands us as believers to learn the parable. Learn the parable. The word learn, manthano, means to take on a responsibility to acquire knowledge, accept that knowledge is true, and apply that knowledge to our lives. Therefore, believers, you and I have a responsibility with the biblical text before us to acquire knowledge, accept it as true, and apply the lessons of these seven parables to our lives. Now, these parables are prophetic. They compare earthly things with heavenly things to reveal truths to us about the Messiah's return. But the truths here directly apply to our lives. How do we learn the lessons of these parables? How do we learn them? Well, in Revelation chapter 1 and verse 3, the Apostle John writes, Blessed is he who reads and those who hear the words of this prophecy and heed the things that are written therein. Now, there's three statements right there, three steps in order to learn the parables. We need to do three things. Number one, we must read the text. Okay? You cannot learn the lessons of the text if you've not read the text. The word read there, anagonosko, means to read aloud. 
to help you study. Now, it's interesting, isn't it? Because, you know, so often we read things quietly to ourselves, but he wants you to read it aloud. Why? So as you're reading it aloud, you're not only reading it, you're not only seeing it with your eyes, but now you're what? Hearing it with your ears. Which brings us to the second thing we need to do. We must hear, and that word hear is the word akuo, which means to hear and heed, to listen for the sake of learning. And what are we learning? We're learning the words, the logos, or the content of the passage. And then finally, we are to heed, tereo, which means to obey those lessons we've learned. You'll never learn anything from the pages of the Holy Scripture unless you what? Read it, hear it, and apply it. Okay? You have to study it. It's what Paul talks about. We're to be diligent studiers of God's Word. We're to rightly divide it. Now, in the fig tree parable, Jesus confirms for us that the tribulation is the sign of His return as King to judge the world. The parable also confirms some lessons for us. Number one, lesson number one, God is in control of history. Lesson number two, God has a definite, unchanging plan for humanity. And lesson number three is that His word is eternal and immutable. Now, in Matthew 24, verses 36 to 51, Jesus tackles the next three parables regarding the day and the hour of His return. The day and the hour of His return. And we have to ask ourselves, what lessons do these parables have for us as believers? What lessons are here in these three parables for us to learn? Let's begin with the first parable regarding the day and the hour of Jesus' return. And that is the parable of the two men and two women in Matthew 24, 36 to 41. The parable of the two men and two women. Let's read beginning in verse 24. Excuse me, chapter 24, verse 36. Matthew 24, verse 36. He says, But of that day and hour knows no one knows, not even the angels of heaven, nor the Son, but the Father alone. For the coming of the Son of Man will be just like the days of Noah. For as in those days before the flood they were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage, until the day that Noah entered the ark. And they did not understand until the flood came and took them all away. So will the coming of the Son of Man be. Then there will be two men in the field. One will be taken, one will be left. Two women will be grinding at the mill. One will be taken, one will be left. Notice Jesus begins stating what? Of that day and hour, no one knows. Now contextually, Jesus has been speaking about His return. Immediately after the tribulation of those days. According to verse 29. So those days, that future period at the end of this present age, when the tribulation occurs, is the time when Jesus returns. He just confirmed that in the fig tree parable. He just said, I'm going to return immediately after the tribulation. But he says that day and hour, no one knows. In other words, the details, the specific day and time of that return... No one knows. We know that it's going to happen immediately after the tribulation, but we don't know the specific day and hour. Jesus affirms that no one knows the time of his return. 
The word knows, oida, means to possess specific knowledge regarding an event. That event, there's no one know, who knows the, that information. Though the tribulation is the sign pointing to his return, the particular time, the particular day, the particular hour has been revealed to no one. No one includes not only humanity, but the angels of heaven and the Son. Only the Father alone knows the specific time of the Son's return. Now we could just stop there and say this. Any date setter for the return or the rapture is a liar. Anyone who tries to give you a specific year, specific day, a specific hour is a liar. Because the Bible says no one possesses that knowledge. Okay? No human, no angel in heaven, not even the Son. Only the Father knows the specific time of the Son's return. Now, these angels are in heaven, which implies that they are holy. And according to Matthew chapter 18 and verse 10, these holy angels continually see the face of my Father. Which tells us that they're always in God's presence. They're always awaiting God's instruction. And though they're continually in God's presence, they are not apprised of God's secrets. They don't know these things. And by the way, that why would Jesus have to make this statement? Because the rabbis of his day taught that God revealed everything to the angels. So Jesus says, oh no, no. The angels don't even know. In fact, the secret of the son's return was not even known to Jesus when he spoke these words. The Son of God did not know the time of his return because when he took on human flesh, when he took on a human nature at the incarnation, he voluntarily laid aside the outworking of his deity. He did not lay aside his deity. He still remained 100% God. But he laid aside some of the outworkings of his deity. For example, in John chapter 5 and verse 30, he says, I can do nothing of my own initiative. I can do nothing of my own initiative. He went on to explain in Matthew 12, 28, that he cast out demons, not of his own power, but of the Spirit of God. So while he was on earth for those 33 years, he voluntarily laid aside, laid aside some of the outworkings of his deity. For example, this would include his omniscience. So when Jesus declares that the time of his return is unknown to even to him, he's talking about the self-imposed limitation of his omniscience. For the time he spent on planet earth for 33 years, he willingly chose to limit what he knew. So indeed he did not know. And while his knowledge was limited during his earthly ministry, understand that when he returned and went to heaven and was glorified, that he resumed full knowledge. So when Jesus is glorified at the ascension, he resumes full knowledge. But at this moment in time, Jesus chose not to know the time of his return to earth until he returned to heaven. Does Jesus know it today? Yes. But... At this moment, he did not, 
because he willingly laid aside that knowledge. Now how is it if the tribulation is the sign of the Messiah's return and his return occurs immediately after the tribulation? How is it that no one can then know the specific day or hour of his return? Well again, let's put ourselves in the sandals of the disciples and it'll fit very much for us today. The tribulation begins with the covenant made between the Antichrist and Israel. Okay? Daniel 9.25 tells us that the tribulation will be one week or seven years. But does anybody know the day or the hour of that covenant? No. So the disciples didn't know the day or the hour the Antichrist would make a covenant with Israel. We don't know the day or the hour Christ or Antichrist is going to make a covenant with Israel. Therefore, we cannot determine the day or the hour of his return. More specifically, the covenant, this covenant between Israel and the Antichrist cannot be ratified until after the rapture of the church occurs. Now, ladies and gentlemen, this is very important. Because I can't tell you how many times every, that, I, that I hear somebody or hear several people say, Pastor, do you think this covenant's the one? Listen, lots of covenants have been made going all the way back to Carter and Nixon and whatnot with Israel between different power brokers. And not one of them has been this covenant. And my friends, we will not be alive on earth when this covenant is made. Why? Because the rapture has to happen first. If you're a believer, if you're a child of God, friend, let me tell you something. You're not going to see, from earth's vantage point, the covenant made between the Antichrist and Israel. It cannot happen until after the rapture. Now, regarding the rapture, there's no biblical prophecies that have to be fulfilled. Okay? Nothing holding back the rapture from happening. We say, theologically, that the rapture is imminent. It can occur at any moment. And because no one knows when the rapture will occur, guess what? We don't know when the rapture is going to happen. Therefore, we don't know when the covenant is going to be made. Therefore, we don't know when the seven-year tribulation begins. Therefore, we don't know the day or the hour of the return of Jesus Christ. But we do know it will happen. We know that it will happen at the end, immediately after the end of the tribulation. You know, here's an interesting aside. The rapture is the event... When Jesus comes for his bride, the church. Now currently, we as the church, we as believers, the universal church, the body of Christ, we are espoused, engaged, if you will, to Jesus who will be our groom. At the rapture, he is going to wed himself to us. Okay? That's going to be the wedding. The rapture. Now, I want to give you an interesting analogy here. Within the traditional Jewish wedding ceremony, neither the groom nor the bride know when the wedding ceremony will occur. Only the groom's father knows the day and the hour of the ceremony. The groom and the bride are only made aware of the ceremony when what? The trumpet is sounded. You see the analogy there? What precedes the rapture of the church? The sound of the last trump. Jesus affirms that only his father knows when his son and the church will be wed. 
Furthermore, look at that phrase there, the day and hour. This statement has a very unique significance. Rosh Hashanah, or the Feast of Trumpets as we call it, marks the beginning of the uh, month called Tishra. Okay? It also marks the beginning of the agricultural civil year. Now, while Rosh Hashanah occurs during the fall season, it's the only day of the Lord's feast in which the exact day and hour are unknown. No one knows the day or hour of Rosh Hashanah. You see, to establish the day and hour of Rosh Hashanah depends on the appearance of the new moon. And so on the 30th day of the month, two witnesses were appointed to go out and to watch for the appearance of the new moon, which occurs at sunset. And when they spotted the new moon, guess what they did? They sounded, you ready? The last trumpet. Announcing the beginning of Tishra and the celebration of Rosh Hashanah. Now since Jesus fulfilled the spring feast in his first advent, his second advent it will fulfill the fall feast. Rosh Hashanah begins with the sound of the last trumpet at the sighting of the new moon. Paul reports in 1 Corinthians 15, 52, in a moment in the twinkling of an eye at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound, the dead in Christ will be raised imperishable and we will all be changed. That's the rapture. The rapture of the church. You know, Jesus died on the day of Passover as the Passover lamb. He resurrected as the first fruits on the feast of first fruits. The Holy Spirit descended and indwelled us on the feast of Pentecost when the law was given and he inscribed the law upon our hearts. Now, if he would fulfill all those, all those details of those feasts, then we can expect he will fulfill in detail those fall feasts. And so we can expect that the rapture of the church will occur specifically in connection with what? The Feast of Rosh Hashanah, the Feast of Trumpets. Now, we cannot establish the exact day or hour of that future Rosh Hashanah because why? It has to be determined every year. We don't know the day. We can know the season. Listen, we know the season of the return of Christ. It happens in what season? At the end of the tribulation. The rapture of the church occurs in a season. The season of Rosh Hashanah. But we don't know the exact day or hour. Because we don't have the exact day or hour of Rosh Hashanah either. Well, when the rapture occurs, and the church is removed, the Holy Spirit is removed with the church. And with the removal of the Holy Spirit, the evil one, the Antichrist, can be revealed. And then seven years later, Jesus will return. But again, because the exact day and hour of the rapture are unknown, the exact day and hour of his return are still unknown at this time. Now, while the specific timing of his coming is currently withheld, Jesus does reveal to us what? He says the coming of the Son of Man will be just like the days of Noah. Now, if I read that to you, your immediate response was likely this. The Messiah is going to return in a day of great wickedness because there was great wickedness in Noah's day. Genesis 6, 5 says, The Lord saw the wickedness of man was great on the earth and that every intent of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And indeed, evil will be unrestrained during the tribulation. But 
But that's not Jesus' point. Jesus' statement here is, does not, is not saying that his return or is going to happen in a day of great evil. Yes, it's going to be evil. We know that. But that's not the point he's making. Jesus clarifies his point. Notice he goes on to say, For as in those days before the flood, they were evil. Is that what it says? No, it says they were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage until the day Noah entered the ark. And they did not understand, they did not comprehend until the flood came and took them all away. So will the coming of the Son of Man be. In other words, he is going to return at a time when the prevalent attitude displayed in Noah's day is going to again be prevalent. So what is the prevalent attitude? Notice, they're going to be eating, drinking, marrying, and giving in marriage. Now I want you to understand something here. Eating and drinking is not a euphemism for evil revelry. He merely is stating, that's a statement, a Jewish statement to mean they're going about their day-to-day -day life. They're going to weddings. They're giving their daughters away. Uh, you know, it's just life is as normal as possible. They're going to go about life unconcerned about the perilous events around them. Now, you might think it's to yourself and say, well, how could they just ignore those things? Folks, listen. Think about the day and age in which we live in. How often do people live their lives in the face of tragedy as if nothing happened? We do it all the time. You know, oh, the first 24 hours of the news cycle were, were peeled to the television. But then we get tired of hearing it, and soon but it's just in the back of our minds. And we just go about our day-to-day -day lives as if nothing's happened. And that's exactly what it's going to be like in the tribulation. Do you realize that for, Noah preached for 120 years, warning people to repent because divine judgment was on the horizon. But the people lived their lives unaware that the flood was coming until it was too late. And just like the flood of Noah's day, the Messiah's coming as judge is going to arrive suddenly and unexpectedly despite the warnings. 140,000 Jewish men, Elijah and Moses, and an angel are going to warn people during the tribulation to repent because of God's coming judgment. And unfortunately, sadly, many in the tribulation will live utterly unaware of the coming judgment occurring at Jesus' return. Now, folks, there were two groups of people living in Noah's day. The righteous and the unrighteous. The unrighteous were taken away by the flood. It was the righteous who were left behind from God's judgment in the safety of the ark. Jesus parallels this fact with the two men and two women parable. He says there's going to be two men in the field. One will be taken, one will be left Two women will be grinding at the mill. One will be taken and one will be left. Now, men working in a field was a familiar image. The men in the field were day laborers hired to work the landowner's field. The grinding mill was not the large community mill that required animals to turn. This was a small <clears throat> millstone found in a courtyard and would be shared by several families. And these courtyard mills were small and uh, could be easily moved by the women who would grind small portions of grain needed for the daily meal. Now notice that in each illustration, one man and one woman is taken, one man and one woman is left. 
Now, we need to clarify something here. Because at the rapture of the church, the believers are taken and the unbelievers are left behind. But this isn't the rapture here, folks. We're talking about the return of Christ. You see, when he returns as judge following the tribulation, it's going to be just like the flood. Only Noah and his family were left behind and brought into the new world. So too the man and woman left behind represents the redeemed, those believers living in the tribulation, who will be received into the messianic kingdom. Just as those outside the protection of the ark are taken away by the judgment of the flood, so the man and woman taken out of the field and taken out of the mill are taken to judgment and cast into hell. The second parable regarding the day and hour of Jesus' return is the parable of the thief in the night. Matthew 24, 42 to 44. Matthew 24, 42 to 44. Verse 42 says, Therefore, pay attention, be on the alert, for you do not know which day your Lord is coming. But be sure of this, that if the head of the house had known at what time of the night the thief was coming, he would have been on the alert and would have not allowed his house to be broken into. For this reason, you also must be ready for the Son of Man is coming at an hour when you do not think He will. Therefore, that tells us this is the logical conclusion of the previous statement. Be on alert, Gregorio, that's an imperative, commanding us to be watchful, to be mindful. And it's a picture of a night watchman who must remain awake and alert while on duty. Because the precise time of Jesus' return as judge is unknown, those living in the tribulation should be prepared. As believers today, we do not know the precise time of the rapture. We too must be prepared. We too must be on the alert. We too must be mindful. Now following his warning, Jesus says, be sure of this. That word be sure of, gnosko, it implies the idea of you need to know something. Now there's a little bit of wordplay here. Because we don't know the exact day or hour of the Lord's coming. But here's what we can know. We can know what's revealed in this parable. He, Jesus says, if the head of the house had known at what time of night the thief was coming, he would have been on alert and would not have allowed his house to be broken into. Makes sense. Alright, that's a parable we can all understand. Burglary undoubtedly caught their attention. It's an all too common problem in Judea in the first century. If you knew a thief was coming to target your house, you would be on alert to prevent the thief from breaking into the house. And again, you'd have been alert. You'd have been Gregorio. You'd have been watchful. You'd have been mindful. Like a night watchman. And I find it interesting here that Jesus compares himself to a thief. That's odd. Okay, He compares himself to a thief. Not the character of the thief, but to how the thief comes. He comes unexpectedly. Okay, John says in Revelation 3.3, 3, 
He quotes Jesus' warning to the church of Sardis. Jesus says, if you do not wake up, I will come like a thief. And you will not know at what hour I will come to you. In Revelation chapter 16 and verse 15, John writes about the battle of Armageddon. Again, Jesus speaks, behold, I am coming like a thief. Twice now, two other times, Jesus compares himself to a thief. Why? Because his coming, whether it's the rapture or the return, is going to be unexpected. It should not be unexpected for us as believers, though. We should be expecting it. We may not know the exact day or the hour, but we ought to be awaiting and watching for it. But for the unbelievers, it'll be completely unexpected. Peter and Paul apply the thief parable to the day of the Lord. Paul says in 1 Thessalonians 5, 2, You yourselves know full well what the day of the Lord will come, just like a thief in the night. Peter says in 2 Peter 3.10, The day of the Lord is going to come like a thief. Now what is this day of the Lord? It begins with the tribulation and includes the return of Christ and the millennial reign and so on and so forth. And ends with uh, the new heavens and new earth. So why is the day of the Lord going to come like a thief in the night? Well, we know it can't begin until after the rapture, but guess what? The unbelieving world is not expecting it. They're not waiting for it. They're not watching for it. It's going to totally catch them unaware like a thief breaking into their house in the dark of night. Listen, friends. The flood was not unexpected by Noah and his family. They were believers. But the flood was unexpected by the unrighteous of Noah's day. Jesus says, for this reason you also must be ready. The word ready there, hatoimois, means to be in a constant state of preparedness. You need to have your go bag ready. He is coming at an hour when you do not think he will. In other words, be ready at all times. We're awaiting the rapture. Future believers in the tribulation will be awaiting the return. But regardless of where we're at in history, we must always be alert we must not be distracted by the things of this world. Like a homeowner aware that a thief is on the prowl, uh, trying to attempt to break in, we must consider whether or not we're ready. Are you watching and waiting? Are you prepared for the rapture? Paul warns us in 1 Thessalonians 5.4, Brethren, you are not in darkness that, day would, that that day would overtake you like a thief. For you're all sons of light and sons of the day. Now the word there Paul uses for darkness, skotas, refers to spiritual ignorance. You are not spiritually ignorant. I, God has not left us in spiritual ignorance regarding the rapture or the day of the Lord. We may not know every detail, but we have enough material, we have enough information to know what we need to know about those events, particularly to be watching and waiting. So that we will not be overtaken. We will not be surprised by them. Notice he says that you are sons of light and sons of day. These are two Semitic expressions for the righteous. You're the righteous. God has revealed to the righteous this information. John says, uh, Jesus says in John 12, 36, While you have the light, believe in the light, so that you may become what? Sons of light. In other words, if you're a believer, you're a son of light. You need to reflect the light of Christ in your lives. You need to be morally upright. Now, because we're not of the night or of darkness, Paul goes on to say, we do not sleep as others. 
Now again, there in 1 Thessalonians 5, what Paul's referring to there by darkness or night is a reference back to light and day. It's the opposite. What? Listen, Colossians 1.3 says this, Believer, you have been rescued from the domain of darkness. We're no longer in the dark. We're in the light. And because we are in the light, we shouldn't be asleep. The word sleep here is interesting. It's the word for indifferent. Believer, you should not be indifferent about the rapture. You should not be indifferent about the tribulation. You should not be indifferent about the return of Christ. You need to learn these things. You need to know these things. You need to apply these things to your life. Knowing what's coming ought to affect how you live today. That's why Paul says, be alert and sober. Guess what? That word, be alert, that Paul uses in there in 1 Thessalonians 5. Gregorio, same word. Be watchful, be mindful. Knowing the rapture of the church is imminent, knowing it can occur at any moment, we must not be indifferent towards spiritual things or irresponsible in our behavior. The final parable here regarding the day and hour of Jesus' return is the parable of the good and evil slaves. Matthew 24, verse 45 to 51. The parable of the good and evil slaves. Verse 45 says, Who then is the faithful and sensible slave whom his master put in charge of his household to give them their food at their proper time? Blessed is that slave whom his master finds so doing when he comes. Truly I say to you, he will put him in charge of all his possessions. But if that evil slave says in his heart, My master is not coming for a long time, and begins to beat his fellow slaves, and eat and drink with drunkards, the master of that slave will come on a day when he does not expect him, at an hour which he does not know, and will cut him in pieces, and assign him a place with the hypocrites. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. The theme of the previous parable was stay alert because you don't know the day or the hour. Jesus is building on that theme with another parable, the good and evil slave parable. And he begins with a question, who then is the faithful and sensible slave? Now, when we think about slaves in the scripture, all people are slaves to something or someone. For example, in John 8, 34, Jesus says, everyone who commits sin is a slave of sin. Congratulations, ladies and gentlemen. You all commit sin. We all are slaves to sin. But Jesus goes on and tells us through Paul in Romans 6.14, sin will not be master of you. You no longer have to remain a slave to sin. You can become, in the words of 1 Corinthians 7.22, Christ's slave. And how does that occur? That occurs when we repent of sin and place our faith in the gospel. And if you are a slave, whether you're a slave to sin or you're a slave to the Savior, being a slave means you're responsible for serving and obeying the Lord. What master are you serving? Now, in this parable, the slave is not referring to the slave to sin. The slave is not referring to believers. The context in this parable, is focusing on the generation. This generation living in the tribulation. Primarily, this generation is Israel. Listen to Isaiah 41, verse 8 and 9. Yahweh declares, You, Israel, my servant, 
whom I've taken from the ends of the earth. You are my servant. I have chosen you and not rejected you. So when Peter, James, John, and the rest of the disciples hear this parable of the servant, they're not thinking about the church. You know why? Because there's no such thing as the church yet. Okay? What are they thinking about? They're thinking about themselves as Israel. We're the servants of God. We're the servants of Yahweh. So the servants here in this parable are Jewish people. Now he says there's two types of slaves. There's two types of Jewish people living in the tribulation. One that's faithful and sensible. Faithful, pistos, means they're trustworthy. Sensible, phronimos, means they exercise good judgment or common sense. So the trustworthy slave exercises good judgment. That represents regenerate Jews. The other slave, the other Jewish person, is evil, kakos, morally wrong or reprehensible. That's the unregenerate Jews living in the tribulation. Jesus says in the parable that the master put in charge of his household a slave to give them their food at the proper time. Now notice here the master. The Greek word for master is kurios which denotes the head of the house or the head of a group of servants. But here's what's interesting, that in the New Testament, the word kurios is also used as the equivalent of the Hebraic title Yahweh. So every time you see Lord Jesus Christ, when, when Peter and Paul and all the rest called him Lord or Master, they were using the Greek word kurios to identify that Jesus is Yahweh. Yahweh, Yeshua, Yahweh saves, Mashiach, Messiah. So who's the master in this parable? Yahweh. Or Jesus, God in the flesh. The Jews are the slaves. He's the master. Well, the master put in charge, me. he assigned duties or responsibilities to one particular servant over the household or the group of household servants. And the responsibility was clear, feed these other slaves. That was his one job, to feed them. Now, what have the Jews been entrusted with? According to Romans 3.2, they've been entrusted with the oracles of God. That is, they were given God's word, specifically His law. Moses asks in Deuteronomy 4.8, What great nation is there that has statutes and judgments as righteous as this whole law which I am setting before you today? God gave them His law, not to keep to themselves, but to share with the rest of humanity. Had they fed the other servants, had they fed the Gentiles... God's law and His Word, guess what? The Gentiles would have known who God is. They would have known their sin and their need of a Savior. And they'd have been ready to receive the Gospel. The Jews were appointed to feed others with God's Word. That was their responsibility. That will be their responsibility during the tribulation. Indeed, there's 144,000 Jewish witnesses in the tribulation. Feeding all the other slaves the word of God. Jesus says, blessed is that slave whom his master finds so doing when he comes. I love that word, blessed. Makarias means to possess God's favor because you did God's will. When Jesus comes, he's going to bless those Jews who are sharing the gospel. They're sharing God's word. 
He's going to put them in charge of all his possessions. In other words, you, he gave them one duty. Those who dispatch that one duty will be given greater responsibility in the kingdom. In contrast, sadly, with good slave, there is an evil slave. The evil slave says in his heart, my master's not coming for a long time. And he begins to beat his fellow slaves and eat and drink with drunkards. Again, the slave stills the Jewish people and the master is still Yahweh. These are evil or immoral, unregenerate Jewish people in the tribulation. And as with the slaves in the first parable, or first part of the parable, they have been put in charge of other slaves. Again, their job is the same, to share God's word, to feed them. This group, though, is per, their perspective is skewed. They assume the master's not coming for a long time. I can do as I please. And so he begins to beat his fellow slaves and eat and drink with the drunkards. Listen, you had a one job to do, feed the other slaves. But instead of feeding, he acts selfishly, beats the other servants, and parties with the local drunks. By the way, I think the reference here to the drunkards is significant. Because in the Hebrew scriptures, drunkenness is condemned and used to describe those under judgment. In Jeremiah 13, 13, Yahweh says, I am, about to I am about to fill all the inhabitants of this land and all the inhabitants of Jerusalem with drunkenness. I'm coming to judge. In Nahum 1, 10, those who are drunken with their drink, they will be consumed. All through the Hebrew Scriptures, the point is this. Drunkenness is associated with God's judgment. And so, by associating these unregenerate Jews with drunkenness, Jesus is saying in the parable that they have aligned themselves with those under God's judgment. They rejected me, they rejected my word, they didn't feed the other, sheep, the other slaves, they're under judgment. Not only did he not perform his duty, he behaves foolishly because he thinks he's got time. And Jewish people living in the tribulation are going to behave just that way. They're going to violently turn against their people. They're going to associate with other immoral people. I have no doubt that there will be unregenerate Jews living in the tribulation who are going to align themselves with the Antichrist and will persecute their own people. Jesus goes on to reveal, no one knows the day or the hour. The master of that slave will come on a day when he does not expect him, at an hour when he does not know. You see, the master's delay lulls the evil slave into a Sense of false security. But understand this, it's not the master's fault, it's the slave's fault because his perspective is wrong. He has deceived himself. These rebellious, unregenerate Jews ignored the signs and the messages of the tribulation. They're not expecting the Messiah. They're not looking for the Messiah. And now the judge is standing at the gate ready to mete out judgment against them. Jesus says, the master when he comes will cut him in pieces. Dakatomia, literally cut him in two. Now, you know, I had to be honest, I'm scratching my head when I'm studying this because I'm like, what is the significance of cutting them in two? In the Hebrew scriptures, cutting something into pieces or in half was part of the preparation of a burnt offering. Exodus 29, 17 says, cut the ram into its pieces. 
wash its entrails and its leg, and put them with the pieces and its head. Now, the burnt offering was an atonement sacrifice. And when that animal was butchered into pieces, it conveyed to the offerer that the price of sin is destruction and death. Additionally, cutting a person in two was one of the severest forms of judgment in the ancient Near East. When King David went to war against the Ammonites and won, 2 Samuel 12.31 reveals this. You won't you, you aren't hear this in a in a children's story. He brought out the people who were in the city, set them under saws, sharp iron instruments, and iron axes. What did David do there? He took the Ammonites, brought them out of the city, and cut them in two. Wow. Hebrews eleven thirty seven tells us that some of the prophets were sawn in two. In fact, according to the Talmud, Isaiah was sawn in two by the wicked king Manasseh. So what is Jesus telling us here? He's telling us that the unregenerate Jews in the tribulation are going to face the ultimate judgment of destruction and death at his hands. And then he says he's going to assign them a place with the hypocrites. Hypocrites? Well, we know what a hypocrite is. It's an actor in the theater. But remember, Jesus called the Pharisees what? Hypocrites. Why? Because they were religious frauds. Pretending to have faith but not possessing true faith. And these religious frauds have a special place in hell. Matthew 23, 33. How will you escape the sentence of hell? Jesus asked the Pharisees. Told them right then and there, you're going to hell. Except he didn't use the word Hades. He used Gehenna, which means the lake of fire. There is a special place in the lake of fire for Pharisees. And guess what? Along with those Pharisees, there's a special place for these unregenerate evil Jews who turned against their own people, who aligned with the Antichrist, and who placed themselves under God's judgment. And in case you're wondering, is it really the lake of fire? He says, in that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. The lake, that's the lake of fire, folks. Whew. The tribulation is a sign enough to alert the people of that day that the judge is near. For us, it's the rapture. The rapture is imminent. It can happen at any time. And because of that, because there's no signs, no wonders preceding the rapture, we need to be watching and waiting. The day and the hour is a mystery. We don't know. And believer, we ought not speculate or attempt to set a specific day and date. But beyond that, there's three lessons we need to learn. From three parables. In the two men and two women parable, Jesus teaches us that we must be ready. We must be ready. The rapture is imminent. It can occur at any moment. But because, and I believe the lack of day and hour has made some of us ho-hum in our attitude. We've gotten so caught up in our day-to-day -day living that we're unready and we're unprepared for the rapture. Is that you? Do you have a ho-hum attitude towards His coming? I would challenge you, believer, to examine yourself as to whether you're prepared to stand before the judge. Listen, that at, the, at, the return, at the rapture of the church, there's going to be a bema seat. He's going to judge your works. Are you ready? Are you living for the day-to-day, -day, or are you living in light of eternity? In the thief in the night parable, he teaches us we must not only be ready, we must be alert. 
We've been waiting for the rapture for almost 2,000 years. And again, that seeming delay has lulled us into a sense of indifference. We must consider. I want you to think, folks. Are you ready? Or are you indifferent? Are you eagerly waiting and watching for Jesus coming in the air? Or are you alert for His coming? And here's the test. Are you mindful of your behavior? How are you living? Because how you live, what you think about, what you talk about, how you live, tells and demonstrates whether or not you're really ready, whether you're alert. And finally, in the good and evil slaves parable, Jesus teaches us we must not only be ready and alert, but we must be faithful and wise. You're either faithful and wise or you're evil and foolish. That's your two options. There's no gray area there, folks. And so I want you to ask yourself, are you striving to obey God? Or are you content to fall short? Yeah, well, I didn't do what he wanted me to do, but it's okay. It'll be all right. Man, that ho-hum attitude is God going to get you. We've got to be striving to obey. We've got to be faithfully, wisely performing the duties that God has entrusted with us. Because, friend, make no mistake. He's given us little, but he's going to give us much if we use the little he's given us. But if we refuse to use the little he's given us, he's going to return with great judgment against us. Choice is yours. Will you be ready? Will you be alert? And will you be faithful and wise? Let's pray. Father God, we come to you in prayer. We come to you invoking Jesus' name, our great high priest. And Father, we must come with confession on our lips. Because if we honestly examine ourselves, Father, we're not always ready, we're not always alert, we're not always faithful, and we're not always wise. We all have room to grow. We all have room to work. And so, Father God, I pray that you might forgive us in your kindness, in your grace, in your mercy for those times when our attitude is wrong, in those times, Father, when we're not doing what we are to do, particularly in this area. Father, as the rapture draws near, whether it occurs in our lifetime or not is indifferent, makes no difference. Because, Father, we're told to live as if it's going to happen today. Because, Father, the day is coming when we will all stand before the judgment seat of Christ. And, Father God, I pray that when we do, our works are tried and our works are tested. I pray that by your grace there would be more coming forth as gold than in, as wood, hay, and stubble and being burnt up. Father, be gracious. I pray, Lord, that your Spirit who indwells us will work in us, Father, to drive us to be like that good slave, to be faithful, to be sensible, to drive us to be like that house owner and to be alert, to make us be like that man and woman, even though they were going about their daily work, they were still ready. Give us, a, give us that sense of urgency so we eagerly wait and watch and live like we believe your son is coming. We pray, Lord, and ask that you might be glorified in us today and this week and every opportunity we have until your son returns. Amen.